0: I know when we go into retreat, we often go into a, a, a somewhat timeless zone where the days pass and one starts to forget which day it is. And um, But today is a special day in the calendar here in the U.S. It is traditionally Thanksgiving Day. And it is a often quite a tender day for various reasons. Um, There's a lot around family and gathering and a holiday and pausing as one sort of leads up to the change of year and the Hanukkah and Christmas holiday season. So um, I just want to bring that into our awareness and to to honour within that day, there is also the reflections on what really brings us together in a positive way as human beings, Uh, the sense and the reflections on gratitude, um, on community, um, on what can help sustain us as we go forward. Um, And that's also a very mixed experience that, um, you know, family is the seat of karma (laughs) and and often the retreats that are around the holiday seasons often fill up quickly possibly not for uh, (laughs) uh, any old reason but because it's it's also comes with underlying stresses and challenges Um, so there's a very mixed thing and then as we as the spirit rock for this um, retreat is the first retreat that's really more deeply honoring that which thanksgiving has been built on and for the community that doesn't actually fill it's a time of giving thanks which is the indigenous community of this land whose land we're actually still sitting on whose land it still is and so there's also a deepening in the culture of a reckoning and an acknowledgement Um, of what has gone before there's sort of a way particularly in white culture that you know you sort of feel that history started kind of like almost yesterday (laughs) Um, and we forget the causes and conditions that have brought us to the places and the frontier countries um, uh, settler or invaded countries actually for those that lived here before and where we've landed you know so this is a place and a point of great amnesia, really, culturally. Um, but it's also a place now of awakening, sort of thawing out and feeling the pain um, that, is it, that, is, um, that is rooted and underwriting our culture and our civilization, our modern civilization. And so to just honor that and um, honor the struggle the ongoing struggle of the First Nations peoples here and in many, globally all over the world, Um, I wanted to just um, draw and honour both their resistance um, and their wisdom. Um, I was at Standing Rock very briefly which was really probably the only decolonized space that I've ever really been in. And it was for that, it was a profound learning. And because I wasn't there for very long, I tried to learn and as much as I could, somatically more than taking notes kind of learning. And this is really a community that was um, committed to breaking the cycles of violence, born of a colonial mindset, uh, this is um, you know, connected with the work we're doing. I mean, the Buddha took back the core of all of this violence to these causes that we're looking at within the mind, the poisons of greed, hatred, and delusion. You know, so we're looking at it at the root in a way, but we also can reflect on how that root has rippled out in the histories that we're living at a systemic level. And there's a a duty in response to suffering, not only to our own, we're working very much in our own suffering in that sphere, and that's very vital to have the time and space to do that. But it also has implications for the larger landscapes that we move within. What was unique in some ways, and not so unique, because it's an old principle, a profound principle, was the ethos and the spirit from which Standing Rock grew and how it positioned itself as a movement of resistance against the forces that are destroying Mother Nature and undermining our ability to have clean water, fresh flowing water, mini wikoni, the water is life. Um, In particular, And all the other stories that we know about our great destruction that's happening at the moment and the deep grief and pain of that that we can uh, need to, to really open to as well, not just the dukkha we feel, but the larger dukkha. But this actually came about because there was a call from the grandmothers and the grandparents and the children to respond to what was happening on the lands there of the of the North Dakota, the Sioux and Lakota peoples. And the call that came through Chief Arval Looking Horse who called all peoples of prayer, all indigenous peoples, all tribes to join together on that land. And when I heard that, it felt like this is an invitation and with a few friends, some of who are here, <laughs> respects, um, to gather together a Buddhist presence so we could join the prayer, which is what we undertook. And that prayerfulness was at the heart. This ceremonial prayerfulness was at the heart and very, very important to stay within that ceremonial prayerfulness as seeding and feeding and nourishing and guiding the acts of resistance. So every day would start with a gathering of the peoples there in a f- freezing cold <laughs> this time of year. Um, you care cared to go around and to smudge every person. That would take maybe an hour, maybe two hours as one froze up. Um, and then speeches and prayers and a silent walk to the Missouri River under which the pipeline was going to go gone I think and then the offering of prayers to the spirits of the water by indigenous peoples from all over the world that came which was unique unto itself and to the lands this living relationship with the spirits of the land of the waters was very real and then the day would start the whole thing maybe took three hours So it wasn't just a few quick prayers, it was a process and it required some endurance to go through, some stamina. And one day around the sacred fire, when one of the actions had gone awry, the energy there wasn't so rooted in what the elders were asking for and there was some violence and harm as a result. One of the elders was reflecting on the, and, and underlining that this is a movement of prayerfulness. And he talked about how that the ancestors are fighting this battle with us and they require us to be aligned with nonviolence. To the place where we see actually ultimately there is a sort of an us and them in that in a mentality of the world of resistance, but ultimately all beings are resident in this one awareness. We were all rooted in the same ground. And so the struggle was also named for the children and grandchildren, the peoples of those that were facilitating in various ways the harm done, being done. And he talked about how the ancestors already knew this time would come. And so they planted in the land the prayers for this time that they are part of this and part of us. And that we need to be here with strength, but without violence to purify our hearts. And that we must pray to have our pain taken away so we can put love in our hearts instead. And that we can unify with nature so she can help heal us. And he talked about how one day at the height of the Iraq war, an elder grandmother prayed to the ancestors at the sacred fire to ask for that war to stop. And the ancestors responded saying her prayer was a very good prayer, but now everyone must pray to stop war, that everyone must come together because we are at a precipice and everyone must join in this deep prayer. This what we're doing, another way of talking about meditation is a deep prayer. We're in a deep prayer, and it's not just like, please, God, get me out of this, (laughs) which is our usual prayer. (laughs) It's a prayer that requires great humility. It's a journey of sacrifice, in a way, of dismemberment of all the places in ourselves that aren't quite aligned yet, aren't quite healed, that come for a reckoning, come to be known, come to be seen, come to knocking at our door. As our teacher Ajahn Sumedho used to say, all the orphans of consciousness that come by when we sit quietly and stop trying to control everything, stop trying to get anywhere. And all those pains of the heart they come and we go, Something's really gone wrong, my meditation has gone bad. But actually, something's gone right. This is what's meant to happen. This is the purification of the heart. They come knocking until we turn with great compassion Ah, this pain, this too. This is our prayer. We're releasing those beings of consciousness so that they can return and dissolve into light. They're not frozen energy anymore in our bodies, in our minds, in our hearts. So, in the teaching, one of the first orientations arriving at Standing Rock was to be aligned with the, the seven great values of the Lakota Sioux Nation. The first one being prayer to honor all life, all life is sacred. And we honor that through this deep listening that we're doing. This is the Kuan Yin practice. People say, who is Kuan Yin? What is Kuan Yin? And Master Wah would say, well, if you don't want to say Kuan Yin's name, say your own name. And when you figure out who you are, you'll know who Kuan Yin is. (laughs) That was a teaching for Westerners. (laughs) Or Western culture, you know. I'm not, I don't know about this okay well say your own name namo me namo me this deep listening this prayerful listening the second is respect which is also about differential listening a willingness to shift like we're shifting now in our understanding of our history here you know, there needs to be some respect for harm done. It's not, you know, in some ways it's not personal, and in other ways it hits personally. You know, it's generational, it's ancestral, it's profound, it's multi layered. But there's a way that we touch the levels of our history and we can just respectfully, deferentially. Not defend, not deflect, not justify, but listen and hear. Taking us into the third great guideline of compassion. To take care of one another. This is what there was, to be compassionate towards oneself. Particularly when making mistakes. The stronger must let the weaker go first. For example, at meals or when we need to support others that are more vulnerable. Step aside from assuming entitlement due to any reason whatsoever, and instead tune in to the needs of those more vulnerable, marginalized. Which leads into the fourth, being more honest, being true and authentic with each other, being self-honest about our conditioning, And the ways that we can generate harm towards self and other, even subtly. And through that, the fifth great guideline. It's just simple paraphrasing of profound teachings, which are very harmonious with the Dharma. Being generous. Put in more than you take out. It's not just sharing physical goods, but generating sustainable life for all. It's a direct opposite of the colonial minds, extractive minds, mindset. This is here for me, this is here for us. Without the con- consequences being taken into consideration. And this requires the sixth great guideline, humility. The idea, My idea is best. Again, back to listening, being sensitive and owning inwardly as we listen more deeply. And the last great guideline of wisdom. We all carry wisdom within us. In the context, in that context of the indigenous or elder wisdom spaces, to listen even more acutely, to listen even more carefully as they carry a wisdom that in many ways, particularly in regard to the living and world that is actually is that we have lost in our modern culture and civilization. So to be respectful, particularly even of those voices you don't agree with, of elders. So this wisdom is what we've been practicing here, this sort of deconstructing of ourselves in a way. Deconstructing the ways we hold ourselves, defend ourselves, project ourselves, how the mind circulates in its old stories and beliefs. To, you know, slowing down with the samatha, hitting that pause button, taking some deeper breaths, and listening inwardly, contemplating this nature of the mind. sorrow last night, in this beautiful teachings, guided us in to the ground of the heart. Where all things are deconstructed. And you say, well, what is this heart? Is there a ground? That's just a metaphor. It sounds like there is something. You know, I was told everything was impermanent. So there's something there isn't. Well, everything is impermanent, but the Buddha did teach there is that which is not impermanent. There is that which transcends death. That was his quest. Is there that which transcends death? Is there a place, a dimension, a realization that is changeless, that is deathless, where all things merge, as said in the Mula Sutta? And that was his revelation on the night of his enlightenment, when he, through the three knowledges of that night, the first knowledge when he looked deeply into the sankara, the patterning, the shaping of the self-structure, and saw how it gone the on and on and on endlessly, this story, this birth, this situation, in this kind of circumstance, in that circumstance, the endlessness of samsara, the endlessness of the feeling of that movement to find a home in form, in shape, in position, in role. That engine of samsara that generates this sankara making, this sankara, sankara, avidjya-pachya-sankara, avidjya, not knowing our true home. The mind not knowing, the heart not knowing its true nature is unconstructed, formless, bright, luminous, unshaped, unformed, immutable, ever-present, undying, imminent. Not knowing its own nature, there is this movement, this ancient primal, primordial movement, vijapachya-sankhara, towards Sankara, towards a shape, a pattern, a birth. We take birth again and again in this mood, in this situation, in that. We'll take birth in anything sometimes, (laughs) any old place, just so that we can feel, oh, they're me. You know, and then of course that conditions the experience Stress, fear, worry, loss, change, death. So this endlessness of that, and the first night of the first night of the, the first watch of the night, the Buddha saw that, and then he contemplated how all beings are such. All beings are on the wheel of this endless round of birth and death, and the profound weariness of this, whatever form we found ourselves in and find ourselves. This huge soup of karmic brewing that's been going on forever in all many forms where ultimately as Master Shunwa would say all beings actually have affinities with each other. We've been everything as the Buddha would say there's not enough oceans to contain the tears we cry from the loss of it all. You know, this is the big world timescape of India, of Asia, the indigenous understanding. It's not just a little blip of, you know, we're just here for a short time and then we die and nothing, get, get what you can, grab it all kind of civilization. This is the ancient cycles of eons that the Buddha was talking to endlessness of it, that all beings, as they say in the Dharma, have been our parents, our children, our brothers, our sisters, our dogs, our cats. (laughs) And then, you know, this great weariness, this Nibbida, this great, as Kirisara was saying last night, disenchantment with it all. And we have a taste of that, maybe not enough I thought I had it, you know, when I first met Ajahn Chah and he said, where am I? Have you had enough yet? Yes. Well, you know, this is a strong, strong patterning. Well, I've had enough, but I might just go check this out. <laughs> you know, 40 odd years later. like, so okay, I might be getting the message. Have you had enough experiences? What else do you need to really taste? Have you suffered enough from that great round of existence? And then the third watch of the night, he saw the house builder, this sankara maker, that which is building the house of self over and over again. And he released from that. No longer will I build this house. The ridge poles are broken, the rafters are shattered. It collapsed completely, irrevocably. The round of Sangsara for him was finished, never to be returned to. The great liberation, the heart, the jitta returned to its own nature. And from that, he wasn't really Siddhartha Gautama anymore. The personality became the Buddha, became the conduit for the Dharma. And he showed the path of that, this too is our destiny. Rajin Cha would say, it's one thing to hear the Dharma, to study the Dharma, to practice the Dharma, to speak the Dharma, but to be Dharma, that's another thing altogether, to be the living Dharma. So this is what we're growing into little by little, planting those seeds here on this retreat. You be the dharma, and when that happens, when we be the dharma, then it's a. Ajahn Mahabhua, great Thai forest master, contemporary Ajahn Chah, he said, when the mind gains change of lineage knowledge, passing from the mundane to the transcendent, it will see what dies and what doesn't. It will blossom as buddho, the knowing awareness that knows no cessation. The knowing awareness that knows no cessation. This, he said, is the purity of mind. If you want, you can call it nibbana. All that I ask is you know this marvellous, extraordinary Dhamma. Call it what you like, it's just a word. It will always dissolve before the reality of it. Any word cannot capture this. All words fall silent before the Dhamma. But it can be tasted, can be known, it can be realised. It is the most real you know, as the Buddha said, we take the real to be the unreal and the unreal to be the real. You know, this is so real, what I'm feeling, my struggle, my mood, my, you know, all of it. <laughs> but where was it yesterday was so real. Now, where was that now? Where's it gone? It's like a student came to Zen Master. I feel so angry. I'm so upset. And the Zen master show it to me. Where'd it go? <laughs> That's not to diminish the work that we do through, you know, the work of transformation and healing through our wounds, through the emotional body. It's very important for maturing and for freeing and for compassion. And But essentially, ultimately, All conditioned dharmas are like dreams, like bubbles, like dewdrops, shadows, a lightning flash. Contemplate them thus, says the Diamond Sutra. I just had that like a lightning flash. Sarah says sometimes when we're out there Damagiri at night we have these great storms in the summer that pass through. Now, if you want to know who is queen in Africa it's the land. She lets you know who's in charge. So she produces these amazing storms and rain. You turn your place into a swimming pool in a few minutes and then it dries up and the next day it's like where did that go it starts all over again and then at night sometimes the lightning goes on into the dark of the night you can see right across from our mountain into the far valleys below you look and it's incredible And you I want to catch and see the next lightning flash But what you forget to see is that each lightning flash dissolves, it's dissolving into this immensity of the depth of the dark night sky. The mystery. So this heart is a mystery. There is the knowing that stands before the mystery, that's open, that knows it doesn't know, that isn't creating something to be known through language, through designation, through the separative consciousness. This knowing, this primal knowing of the jitta, of the heart, is called prajna, panya, wisdom. Prajna, pra, Meaning before, jnana, nyosis, before something is known. In a way that separates out, I know you because I have a name for you. And I have a whole story. That's one way of knowing. But there's a whole other way of knowing, which is what the Heart Sutra is inducting us into. It's not a teaching when I first looked at the heart suit, I said, I, have no, I know this is important. <laughs> I don't know what this, I have no idea what this is about. I kind of feel like I know what it's about, but if someone asked me, I wouldn't be able to say a word. That's the point. <laughs> it's there to sort of fox your brilliant mind. So you return to this heart. In a very naked, open way. It's not wobbling, that heart. It feels like it is. That heart knows. It knows all things are resident within its own awareness. This is the heart of Guanyin, Yin, That is It is a non-separative consciousness. Everything is intimate to that heart. It's known Intimately as part of itself. It's discerned and contemplated and it's known not as itself. So in our practice today, bringing this knowing to whatever phenomena unfolds, it's like this, just this much, its nature is like this, it's dhamma too. When we're in that samsara, clinging, wanting, not wanting, reacting, then it's all me, caught. When they we're rooted in the knowing and presence of awareness, it's Dhamma, it's nature, it's just doing its thing. But it can be known, Avadakiteshvara is the one that knows with compassion. Greatly compassionate one, listens at ease to the sounds of the heart, the sounds of the world. So let this be our practice today. Thank you for listening.